Lena Utrada, and this is the Anti-Dystopians, the politics podcast about tech. So we're here today with Josh Lappin, who's an environmental historian studying at Oxford University. And Josh researches some of the most important technology that there is, infrastructure. So thank you so much today for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. Very exciting. So like everything that touches the tech world, um, there's always this rhetoric, even around something like critical technology, that politics somehow doesn't factor in. And, and in many ways, like integrating politics can somehow ruin um, what it is we're trying to achieve. So I was thinking this a lot recently, you know, so Bill Gates, as you probably are aware, just came out with a new book about how to stop climate change, the climate crisis. And I have to admit, I haven't read it yet, but there was a quote going around in which he says, you know, what the world needs is hundreds of Elon Musks. Um, And I have a lot of thoughts about Tesla and the states and the government's relationship to Tesla. Um, But just in your research on um, energy and environmental history, uh, do you think that's true? Like, do, do you think that there is technical solutions to the climate crisis, like a, a sort of apolitical solutions, or, or is politics really at the heart of this? Right. I think it's a great question. I think it's typical to view climate change through kind of this triumvirate of lenses, where we think about it as a scientific problem with technical solu- solutions and political barriers. And I think if you zoom out far enough, that framing makes sense but it misunderstands the relationship, like you're saying, between technology and politics. Um, Bill Gates is basically arguing, I have to admit, I also haven't read his book, but (laughs) there's been lots of buzz. And he's basically arguing that climate change is a technical problem, that we've got a certain set of technologies and we need to swap them out for other ones. And it's it's a task for innovation. And I think that misunderstands the problem on two levels. One, like you say, is that technology is never independent of politics, that politics not only shapes what technologies appear to be viable, but also fundamentally shapes what technical people think of when they're trying to be creative, right? It shapes people's visions of the possible. That's in one way, in one definition, what politics is about. And so at a very fundamental level, people's politics and people's vision of society is what steers them towards particular solutions. One example that we might uh, choose to rant about a bit uh, <laughs> is the Boring Company. If we want to, if we want to talk about Elon uh, Musk, that's Elon Musk's Boring Company. Yes, yeah, which is a, I think, a strong example of a politically influenced technological imagination. What Musk is imagining is an incredibly technologically complex solution to a problem that has existing low-tech solutions. Um, The boring company is, you know, a a multiple tens of billions of dollar solution with, you know, non-existent technological components that are going to require a lot of innovation. And it basically solves the same problem that a good bus line does. But because (laughs) Musk's political imagination is fundamentally libertarian, uh, all he can imagine is a solution that is both stratifying people based on access to a privatized system, but also one that allows people the comfort of their own private vehicles. The other thing though I wanted to say about Bill Gates and his separation of technology from politics is that I think he misses a fundamental reality when it comes to the 
position we're in in relation to the climate crisis, which is that yes, solving climate change requires a lot of technological innovation. Yes, there are unsolved technological problems that we will have to solve if we want to fix the climate crisis and continue to live uh, in the way that we in developed nations are accustomed over the last 50 to 100 years to living. But fundamentally, we have solved most of the technological problems we have to solve to address climate change. And I think that is something that most people who are not deep in the weeds really don't get uh, from the public narrative around this, that the innovation we need uh, has already taken place. And that to some extent, what needs to happen now is costs need to come down. And even more than that, what needs to happen now are political changes. And we need to build political and social will. Some of the easy ways to articulate that, uh, you know, in the energy system, if we think about the electrical grid, uh, the technologies we need to, you know, 80% or so decarbonize the electricity grid are there. With our existing technologies, we can get our electrical grid almost entirely to carbon neutral sources. Uh, we can't go 100%, probably. People disagree. There are some very credible people out there who think we could probably do it. It would at least be a little bit risky to try, but we don't have to try because it's going to take us, you know, a number of years to make that transition. And so to some extent, the people who think like Bill Gates does that we need to do more research and more technological development before we can begin at a political level to implement solutions, really what they are doing, I think unintentionally, I'm not impugning Bill Gates's motives, but what they're doing is slowing us down. Mm -hmm. um, that we could get started on these solutions in almost every sphere that is relevant um, long before we run up against technological limitations. You know, we should be expansive about what we consider technological, but many technological solutions to climate change are extremely old, um, so old that we actually view them as old-fashioned or unnecessary. Um, large swaths of indigenous knowledge can really reduce the carbon production of our landscapes and ecosystems, which have been shaped over the last several hundred years of European resource intensive and resource extractive landscape management uh, to produce resources, but also to produce carbon. And these landscapes can be restored or preserved uh, using techniques that are extremely old and which have been chauvinistically and uh, condescendingly viewed as you know, unscientific, uh, mythological, or just old fashioned for a long time. Um, at an even more quotidian level, there are farming practices uh, which are viewed as slightly less productive and slightly older fashioned that we used to practice before the middle of the 20th century that can substantially increase the amount of carbon that is retained in soil. Uh, there are you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of examples we can draw out, but the biggest solutions do not necessarily have to be shiny and new and innovative, and they certainly don't have to be brought to us by um, you know, billionaire inventors um, or really billionaire salespeople, if we're being honest, like Elon Musk. No, that was one of the things, like the the news that came up around um, in California last summer, and you know, summers prior to that with the wildfires, which was just like indigenous land management of fires. Incorporating that is an incredible way to um, minimize um, like fire damage that we've just kind of dismissed mm -hmm. aside, put aside, and yet would be incredibly um, effective if we like reintegrated like indigenous knowledge into like our, our government and community systems. Totally. Yeah, ta talking about that, that brings me on, uh, on, on everyone's mind right now is the Texas 
energy blackouts and a similar thing happened in California, like the summer and summers before. Um, So in Texas, I mean, there's been, you know, just some of the coldest weeks ever due to the climate crisis combined with um, basically the energy grid failing. And there's already been multiple deaths um, reported. And you and I both come from, live, grew up in California, we've experienced the drought, we've experienced the wildfire, we've experienced PG&E failing, rolling blackouts so many times. I mean, it was the most dystopian thing this summer. I don't know if you were in California this summer or if you were here. The one day we woke up and the, and I'm from Half Moon Bay and the smoke, it was the day where that had turned San Francisco orange. I was um, in San Francisco, yeah. The smoke was so far down, but I'm from Half Moon Bay, which was on the coast. So because the coast, the smoke was so far down, the marine layer didn't burn off. So it was dark all day. Wow. It was the most dystopic thing. And then you had headlines that was like, the California firefighters can't work because all of our firefighters are prisoners who do forced labor for $1 a day. So many different types of critical infrastructure failing. Um, So looking at like Texas and and California, you know, there's two different infrastructure grids. Um, but what, why is this critical infrastructure not working? Is this the problem? Is it, you know, is it a failure of the government, of regulation, of private industry? Is it something about the public utility model? Do we need to nationalize these things? Like, what is going on? Why can't we get our critical infrastructure to work? Yes. Uh, so the first thing to say is it's extremely complicated. And whatever you think is going on, it's in there somewhere. Uh, and I'm, you know, not the expert on these things. Happy to suggest people who are. Um, But I think the fundamental thing to acknowledge is what we've got is a combination of systems that have been at least struggling, if not failing, for a long time that are now coming up against the increased challenges presented by climate change. And so, yes, these are problems that are pushed to their breaking point by climate change, but no, they're not fundamentally or entirely climate-caused problems, that we have longer-term issues that we have, you know, with varying degrees of success, been able to ignore, uh, that we're now no longer able to ignore and push aside. Which, you know, as any, you know, infrastructure weak hawk or junkie will tell you, <laughs> this nation's infrastructure has been in trouble for a very long time because we're not a country that believes in investing in maintenance or that sees the value. And here's another connection back to the Elon Musk's of the world that sees the value of preserving strengthening and adapting existing technological systems as opposed to brushing them aside in favor of new ones. I think the the way to illustrate that is to just point to, so you you highlight Texas and the many failures of PG&E. We've seen dramatic failures in the last year, but in both of those cases, I mean, you as a Californian probably remember PG&E has been on the ropes for decades. Yeah. Um, and you may remember back in the early 2010s, the San Bruno gas explosion, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, the result of decades of failed natural gas pipeline maintenance obliterated a neighborhood, a giant fireball. Um, that was not a climate caused disaster. That was a fundamental problem of maintenance. What we see in PG&E's electrical grid is a long-term failure of maintenance. PG&E has been more interested in channeling money to stockholders than it has been in performing uh, the type of you know, very routine quotidian maintenance. We're not talking about necessarily high-tech solutions. We're talking about trimming trees um, that prevents wildfire ignitions on power lines during you know, high wind events or, or just during freak accidents when a tree falls over. Um, but it has become worse because climate change has made 
uh, our Californian landscapes hotter and drier and more prone to wildfire. And all of that, again, as you were referencing, has been exacerbated by a long-term program of fire suppression, which traded out an original ecosystem management regime under California's native peoples that promoted low intensity wildfire uh, as a way of managing landscapes and also preventing high intensity wildfire. We've just tried to kill fire wherever we see it. And what that does over the long term is it builds up fuel. And it means when we do get fires, they are much, much stronger. So it's a complex interconnection of issues, uh, which we've been able to kind of kick the can down the road when only one or two of those factors are in play, looking increasingly like we can't do that. Uh, I should be fair to PG&E for a second. I make it sound like trimming trees is easy. It's not when you have a power grid as large as PG&E's. Uh, I don't know the figures, but PG&E has an insane uh, quantity of lines. The mileage is uh, mind-boggling. And maintaining that all is more expensive than California ratepayers uh, have wanted to face. And so it's not entirely PG&E's corporate uh, misaligned incentives, although I don't want to take the pressure off there. Um, it's also the type of system we've been told we can expect, you know, the price we've been told to expect that we can pay for electricity, which may well be too low. And if that's the case, then we've got to rethink how we equitably make electricity accessible, because as it gets more expensive, uh, it gets harder for some people to access. Mm -hmm. um, I, there's an exact parallel in Texas that yes, the weather that Texas experienced is a product of climate change and changes in the jet stream and a bunch of things I don't understand well enough to explain on this podcast. <laughs> uh, but Texas had similar storms that produced similar problems in its power system in 2011 and in 1989. And in the wake of both of those storms, there were a series of recommendations for how Texas could, with frankly minimal disruption to it, its uh, ratepayers, really strengthen its electrical grid. But Texas, philosophically, has not believed in heavy-handed regulation, quote-unquote, in its power system, and it decided to make those recommendations optional for the power companies. And so, of course, the power companies didn't pursue them. And so, of course, Texas is left with the same modes of failure. And so I think there's a risk, although I think it's very important to understand that what we're seeing is climate change happening now, that climate change isn't a future problem, it's a present problem, and requires political action today. A lot of the failures we're seeing are not you know, to be blamed on some sort of you know, unforeseeable and unmanageable kind of climate disaster. They're the product of political failures that go back many decades. And that the solutions are all on the table right in front of us. And we don't need a Bill Gates and we don't need an Elon Musk to produce those solutions for us. That maybe they can make those solutions cheaper or better, but there's no reason to wait for them. Um, because if we do, um, we'll continue to have our infrastructure fail on us. I'm wondering too, so like one of the photos that was really stark about the the Texas blackouts is as you yeah. see from the outskirts of Houston and you can see, you know, so like that um like the suburbs, all the areas surrounding Houston are dark. And then you see the skyscrapers of Houston and they're all yes. lit up. And so and and it's you know, it's been talked about like these these power cuts are predominantly affecting areas that are like black, brown, lower socioeconomic status communities. And the same thing sort of came up with the California blackouts last summer where there some people were saying it was quite suspicious about the areas that uh, were subjected to blackouts, um, especially the neighborhoods that did not um, mm -hmm. have pg e blackouts were where mm -hmm. some of the major tech companies were located. Yes. Um, so I'm wondering, like, is that a conspiracy theory? Like, 
what's the what I mean clearly these things are are have um like way higher impact on, on certain um, and definitely marginalized communities but no like question. at what point is it is that just intentional because of the structural injustice levels? And at what point, um, like, are we seeing certain corporations or, or certain like groups build kind of two tier infrastructure? A really good question and a really complicated one to get precisely right. Um, I think the first thing to say is I've not seen any evidence myself that any of these companies in the California or the Texas situation were intentionally choosing favorites. Um, at the level of examining people's socioeconomic status or political influence in deciding who to black out. But I think you're exactly right to say that these systems are built in ways that compound inequalities and that in, ensure in most cases that the people who are on low priority grid, grid sectors, um, branches are going to be people of, uh, you know, who are poorer, who are black or brown or indigenous who are struggling in you know, various other socially determined ways. In California, part of what you see is where different segments are located because the Bay Area is extremely segregated geographically. And um, you did see a lot of high income, wealthy neighborhoods up in the hills and highly fire prone areas getting blacked out. You didn't see tech companies getting blacked out. Um, Probably, I would think, for two reasons. This is supposition. But one is they're all built down by the Bayfront, right? Mm -hmm. The Google and Facebook and Apple headquarters are in the flats, and they're not in extreme fire risk areas, and so didn't receive public safety power shutoffs for that reason. It's also, though, and this ties back to your example of the lit up skyscrapers in Houston, it's also probably because of the way the grid was built originally. The grid is built really just to, just to optimize the delivery of electricity and therefore um, to, to segregate out kind of domestic distribution for people whose individual homes are, are gonna be fed and are gonna need relatively low, uh, low levels of power made accessible, and then huge kind of industrial scale power users who are going to need distribution trunks uh, with different capacities, right? And the ability to, to provide for much higher uses. And so, you know, often what you found was that, you know, when a utility in Texas made the decision to preserve power to a particular branch that had a hospital on it or a fire station, that the other things on that branch were either big corporate properties that were on that branch because they were, um, because they had high uh, high power needs and they needed the same type of circuit, or in the case of critical infrastructure, hospitals, fire stations, et cetera, you see what you always see in American society, which is that the places that have, you know, good access to critical infrastructure are not the places where poor people, black people, brown people are living, um, that those people are living in, you know, certain public service deserts and therefore also don't live on the electrical circuits that are going to be prioritized. And I don't think you can necessarily fault, or I mean, you, you certainly can. I don't think you necessarily should fault the utility for deciding to preserve power to a hospital. What we need to examine is the larger structure, which guaranteed that by preserving power to the hospital, they were preserving power to you know, people with larger homes and more comfortable situations and other places they can relocate to in an emergency and not preserving power to the people who needed that power to retain water, to retain heat, to stay alive. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's an absolute failure and something Texas has been completely disinterested in thinking about, but which certainly 
I don't think any jurisdiction in the United States has taken seriously enough. Mm-hmm. And there are lots of solutions that get tossed around and lots of different ways to think about the problem. But again, it's a problem that we can solve today that we could have solved 50 years ago, uh, that we could have solved when we first built these systems. Um, but it's never been the way we've chosen to think about our electrical infrastructure or our other infrastructure. Mm-hmm. So it's like corporation and corporate private interest and energy policy at right at the intersection of politics and structural injustice totally. and inequality. Yeah, totally. As we always see. Um, that sometimes decisions are intentional uh, and sometimes they're unintentional, but they all skew towards our, our general social habits. Then thinking about the question of like how we go forward and how all these things are, are interacting with each other. Like, I'm wondering what you think about, especially for things that are critical infrastructure, like what is the um, ramifications or implications of these things being privatized or quasi-private. Um, and this kind of goes back to the question of like corporate incentives. Um, it's like a lot of these, you know, a lot of these big corporations, I mean, Amazon very recently famously took like the, what is it, the carbon zero pledge? Um, yes. <laughs> and they've got carbon pledge arena, <laughs> Whatever. Uh, which makes us all sleep better at night. <laughs> it is. Um, it was actually really interesting. Like I didn't realize. So um, we often forget, especially with the tech companies, that we think of like Google as like a website, right? We don't think of mm-hmm. it as having mm-hmm. a big carbon impact in the same way that like an oil company clearly does. But totally. one of the things, um, Dr. Timnit Gebru, who was recently fired by Google in this really big scandal. I mean, one of the things her memo talked about was the environmental impact of Google's AI like language model and mm-hmm. how environmental mm-hmm. racism impacts. Um, just uh, disproportionately impacts black, brown, indigenous communities in, in the US. Um, brings up Bitcoin uses the energy of a small or a medium nation, in fact. Um, so, so even in their own, like, um, in their own operations, it doesn't seem clear to me that there is an incentive for them to be green. And yet we have in the US some discourse around like, oh, well, private companies that somehow that they can be in charge of transitioning us to more green energy. Um, Like what, so what do you think then is the solution is the model? Like, can we impose, does it have to be imposed regulation? Self-regulation doesn't seem to be working. Does it have to be nationalization? (laughs) Like, do we need more community involvement? Like what's the way politically we should think about the the like energy and like climate implications of our critical infrastructure and how we should yeah. think about going forward. Super easy question, right? <laughs> um, well, I first definitely want to agree with your implied assertion uh, that leaving private companies in charge of doing this voluntarily is ludicrous. Uh, and there's a bunch of reasons, and that's not entirely me casting aspersions on the noble intentions of these private companies although it partially is definitely that. (laughs) Um, It's also a claim that private companies cannot do this, that they're not equipped to do this, that we're used to thinking of private enterprise as having limitless power, being constrained basically only by their pocketbooks. And I think uh, that really cripples our political imaginations in the United States. And I actually view private companies as relatively powerless when it comes to collective action problems like this one. Uh, And I think their ability to address problems is really quite small. And we should be pleased when they take voluntary action. I don't think there's, you know, anything negative on its face, um, you know, when Amazon pledges to go green or Microsoft pledges to go green. 
Um, but I don't think we should be particularly overjoyed either. I don't think we should view it as any sort of real step forward. Uh, these are companies that are motivated by their bottom line. And that's not to cast aspersions. That is what we have told them through the structure of our society that they have to do, right? They are obligated to think in terms of profits. And so when they make a climate decision, they're doing that because of you know, various different profit incentives. Um, on a public relations front, uh, you know, in terms of satisfying their increasingly re restless professional workforces, uh, you know, getting, getting an edge in new technologies that offer some business benefits as well as some carbon benefits. Uh, I think there are lots of reasons they're making these decisions that aren't altruistic. Um, and again, that's not to say that they should be, um, but it is to say that we shouldn't pretend that they are, which is kind of this strange uh, quasi-religious approach we take to, to corporate decision-making in this country. <laughs> that's so true, that is funny. Um, so yeah, woohoo for Carbon Pledge Arena, but it doesn't change anything. And even if Amazon, you know, even if Amazon tomorrow vaporizes its, uh, its climate footprint, the problem yeah, is still right. very, very large um, because, you know, thinking about this at that level is not thinking about this, the scale, about this, the scale we need to be thinking about this. Yeah, no, and it really reminds me, I mean, um, about, about corporate, like, incentives um, that even when corporations, so like Elon Musk's Tesla, which is like supposed to be this like green business, even those corporations, it's often invisible, like the role that the state has played in incentivizing and just, you know, totally. in Tesla's case, dramatically subsidizing those things. So I highly like recommend for those who haven't read it, but Mar Mariana Mazzucato's The Entrepreneurial State, just a fantastic book. Um, she's incredible, where she basically points out like this idea of like, Oh, you know, the US says like, oh, what's our secret? Um, it's free enterprise is actually, oh no, what's our secret? Like state investment. And she goes, you know, from top to bottom, like how much state involvement um, and state money has been involved in, in creating particularly the tech industry. So in the case of Tesla, for instance, Tesla, so like Elon Musk's Tesla, SolarCity and SpaceX combined have been the recipient of $4.9 billion from the state and, and and that's you know local state federal like grants tax breaks investments um that has and has benefited dramatically from you know many other inventions that the state funds and that's only on the supply side then on the demand side i mean elon musk recently made headlines for becoming the richest man in the world because of the stock price of tesla what going up which went up after a biden win because people figured that there's probably going to be a Green New Deal. And so there's probably going to be a big government contract in the wings for Tesla. Um, so Elon Musk is very, you know, Tesla was in the red until last year. I mean, Elon Musk is a state-made man. Let's have no <laughs> doubt about it. I mean, the state yeah. has really been, um, even when it seems like corporations are making decisions, it's really, you know, the state is often the money behind it. Absolutely. And I mean, I think Elon Musk would just keep coming back to him, which is kind of a shame because the man doesn't need more airtime. But he's the perfect example because what you see over the course of his career is him just constantly targeting areas. He's responding to government incentives. It's not just coincidental that he's uh, profiting off of government subsidy. He is founding new businesses in areas where he sees the opportunity for government subsidy. So yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I mean, just to put an even finer point on what you're 
uh, the kind of comprehensive vision you're laying out. Like, what is SpaceX? SpaceX is the privatization of NASA. Like, it's yeah. not just an industry where the government is handing out grants. It is an industry where a conservative philosophy of government has taken an entire technological sector that was created without any private participation, practically. That's an exaggeration. Um, but with, <laughs> with you know, pure pu public leadership uh, during the space race and before that, during World War II, and deciding that it would be better off handled by the private uh, market. And I think we should really question whether that's true without turning this into a space technology podcast. <laughs> but at the very least, we have to acknowledge he is explicitly a vassal of the conservative state that is interested in the privatization of government functions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And he benefits from politics and then pretends that politics have nothing to do with his technological success. Yeah, it's, it's a theme that's come up on this podcast over and over again is, is it, you know, you and I both know Andrew Granato um, and his obsession with Peter Thiel, um, we talked about before, but it is strange. These, it's, it seems to be a, a special type of breed in Silicon Valley of these like, quote unquote, so-called libertarian, like technology, technology entrepreneurs whose business is contracting with big government. Yes. Um, yes. And who created Silicon Valley? It was absolutely the federal government. Mm -hmm. If you look at universities like Stanford, um, Frederick Terman and the other people who built Stanford into an engineering powerhouse did so explicitly in coordination with the military and industrial, you know, departments and wings of the federal government, and with massive, massive subsidy, dating all the way back to the beginnings of the space age. Um, and I mean, this is what Hewlett Packard was. And this is why, in an area that claims to be all about code, you have a vast concentration of Superfund sites, because this is an industrial operation that is creating products at the behest of the government with government money and for exclusively government buyers for many decades until those technologies advanced far enough that there were private markets. And we see that uh, with everything from the seatbelts to computers to SpaceX's rockets. And that like this is, it's baked into Silicon Valley and what it is. Mm -hmm. um, and Stanford students, uh, you know, you know, more radical, uh, age may have, you know, kicked some of these government funded uh, military industrial research institutions like SRI off campus, but the networks and the infrastructures uh, mm -hmm. still exist for sure. It is. So, but the, there seems to be something very interesting. I mean, again, to bring this back to Elon Musk, despite myself, it is just so interesting then what that dynamic that's happening between state corporations and then tech. It's like one of the things that drives me crazy that Elon Musk goes on about is this hyperloop, which is exactly as we were talking about in the beginning, which is this like advanced technological solution for those of you who are lucky enough to not have heard of the type hyperloop. I hate to ruin it's, this for those people. <laughs> if Californians are all too familiar with the hyperloop, it's just this idea that, you know, California for some reason does not even have a train station between, like a train track between its two most populous cities, San Francisco and LA. And so the idea is, since we failed for political reasons to be able to build that quote unquote high speed rail, um, which is really an example of politics. Um, Absolutely. That somehow building a tunnel under the ocean is the solution. Um, but it is this very interesting, um, then, then public transport in the Bay Area then has this very, it, it's, it's a kind of a similar um, 
reaction to public government failures, right? So like, San, like the Bay Area's public transport system is horrific um, in part because the reaction has been this like private, like to, to needed investment in, in public infrastructure. The reaction has been these like private corporation initiatives like Uber, for instance, or like Google Bus, um, which is very interesting because of what it's it seems to be creating is a de facto two-tier public-private infrastructure. No so Google, yeah, Google buses, I mean, actually drive up the housing prices of, if you have a Google bus stop near your house, it drives up housing prices. Like that's how much of a critical infrastructure it is. And it's only for Google employees. Um, so it's very much two-tiered tiered access. I was just going to say, this is neo-feudalism, right? Not, not, to, not to sound alarmist or insane. This is the creation of private infrastructures that encompass, you know, skilled knowledge workers, highly educated workers, higher class workers uh, that draw their entire lives into the orbit of these corporations who see it as more profitable and more palatable. And here's politics again, to create parallel infrastructures, to create um, two tiered systems than to reinvest in public systems. And that's in part on all of us, because of course these corporations don't want to invest in public systems because that requires money. It's an investment in their eyes. And what we used to do is require them to participate. And uh, we've decided increasingly not to, not to force them to participate. Uh, you know, maybe that's tax policy and maybe that's zoning policy and you know, maybe it's any number of other things. But uh, we're seeing the rise of the company town. Uh, but where we're used to seeing that built um, you know, in rural areas in the early 20th century, which is not to say that there was no displacement involved in the construct of the company town. Now we're seeing it built literally on top of existing cities and within mm, them. Yeah. Uh, and, and, but it is the same logic entirely that the corporation is best suited to provide for the needs of its high, high class and highly paid employees, uh, because otherwise it would have to provide for everyone's needs. And that is what we uh, see as the function of government, right? That is government and that is public service. Uh, and it's more expensive and it requires people who are earning more and who have benefited from various systems to give disproportionately. And uh, these companies want to, want to insulate their employees from that. Mm -hmm. And I mean, there's, it's always so funny. There's always those articles that's like, how long can Google employees manage to live at work? And I think <laughs> right. it's like, I think it's like a year. Don't quote me on that, but it is something God. like extensive. And yet, no, but I mean, this, this neo-feudalization, I mean, it, it's interesting. It does come up in the literature and in my research. It, it is really interesting. It's exactly, as you said, it's, it's two tiers being uh, built on top of each other. Um, and, and the corporation is structured that way too. So like we're used to like the gig economy. So things like Uber, there's a difference between working in Uber's headquarters and being an Uber gig worker. Absolutely. They don't even, they, they want to argue that their, their drivers aren't even employees, right? Mm -hmm. They see this difference as fundamental. Yeah. And same with like the Google badges, you know, there's the full, you're an actual Googler with a certain color badge. I don't remember what it is. Mm -hmm. Then there's this these Google contractors who literally have to wear different badges, don't get access to certain like conference rooms. Um, so it, it really mm. is an interesting um, like stratification of, of, of society. And I don't think like, it's, it's interesting how much, so much of what the corporations have done passes over into what is essentially de facto governance, but mm -hmm. governance for certain members. 
Um, right in a self-selected club of participants. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So thinking about that, I mean, one of the things, you know, you and I have talked about, but, but one of the things that seems so, uh, like, that seems to be happening is even beyond, um, like, things that we think of as obviously critical infrastructure, like electric grids, um, these corporations are building different types of critical infrastructure. So like Gmail seems <laughs> like, a, you know, the digital USPS, um, which is an email service subsidized by, you know, ad revenue, right? Like, mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. know, it's not like the US government is giving you your own email address um, or either way you would get like a passport or a driver's license. Mm -hmm. um, and yet it's becoming like your digital identity same same kind of thinking about like almost in the um in the physical world like amazon and it's it's uh, system of delivery trucks in many ways is like competing and may ultimately undermine i mean amazon has like ten thousand trailers it has amazon air it has freight planes um in 2022 it's expected to overtake market share both usps and fedex um which may undermine right like like USPS. Um, so, so what do you think? This is like, you know, we've talked about this before. It's this interesting confluence of like neoliberal privatization of the state, private power, critical infrastructure all coming together. Like how should we think not just about like private corporations in charge of what we know is critical infrastructure, but private corporations creating critical infrastructure? Right, right. Um, and this is, this is, I mean, um, <laughs> we're definitely into one of my hobbies now. I think the USPS is a perfect, like you're saying, uh, this is the area where the different strands of our conversation all come together. You know, America likes to view itself as exceptional for a bunch of things for which it is not exceptional. You know, it's democratic system of governance, it's supposed uh, system of free enterprise. One thing that America is actually, the United States is actually quite exceptional in historically is the creation of a network of communications that is, accept is accessible broadly uh, to the public, or at least to that portion of the public that the state views as citizens. Um, before the United States uh, post office, most postal systems around the world existed for uh, the state and a, a limited network of nobles or elites. And this is true of the postal services that existed in Europe, uh, certainly. And that there were, you know, explicit engines also of colonization and empire. And in the United States, the Postal Service certainly a necessary engine of colonization and of empire. Uh, but from the get-go was founded and was made a fundamental function of the United States government, right? Until the 1970s, the Postmaster General was the cabinet secretary. Um, the Postal Service was set up uh, with subsidized rates to enable people to send to send mail. And this took decades, right, over the over the first decades of the US's history. These changes were slowly implemented. But uh, the United States Postal Service created modern journalism by subsidizing the rates at which newspapers and magazines could be mailed, enabling the distribution beyond kind of local communities of political writing. Uh, and of all other sorts of writing, of technological writing and of, you know, cultural output. Um, and also, uh, and I believe this is a change that took place during uh, the Civil War, but also dramatically reduced the cost of sending mail and turned uh, letter writing uh, into an activity that was accessible to most Americans and made communications across long distances and across the country easy and fast. Uh, and that's 
you know, hard to overstate the cultural and the political and the technological uh, impact of those choices, which were not choices that were being made elsewhere in the world. Uh, and the fundamental point of this, I think, is the, is the principle articulated by some of the founding fathers, um, not to put them, you know, on, on high pedestals, uh, but also articulated by the people who helped shape the postal service over decades and generations, that in order to have a functioning democracy, uh, and in order to have a healthy civil society, you needed communication uh, that was not, you know, geographically restrictive, uh, that could cross um, all of the various lines and boundaries and segregations that were that had been established in physical space, that you needed your citizens to be able to talk to each other and you needed ideas to spread. Um, and I, while I think there are lots of limitations to the notion of a marketplace of ideas, it's really hard to deny how fundamentally important it is in a democracy for people to be able to talk to each other um, out, outside of the confines of kind of state approved and state censored media. Um, the other piece of this though, going back to our conversation about government subsidy of technology in American history, many of the technologies that we like to kind of chauvinistically think of as fundamentally American innovations were subsidized and enabled and preserved by the postal service. Uh, the, the big examples being flight and the railroads. The railroads for decades were, were supported by the fees that the United States Post Office paid to enable rail mail. And uh, people don't know this, but mail used to be much faster. The mail used to be sorted in specially built train cars uh, that traveled at substantial enough speeds and regularly enough that you could send a piece of mail and receive a response the same day in wow. some circumstances between cities, between major urban areas. Really remarkable. Um, early flight, I'm not, you know, the postal service, as far as I know, didn't pay the Wright brothers, but early flight was largely, and this is not just a factor in the US, but this is a factor across European uh, colonial empires as well. Early flight is created um, and sustained and funded uh, by postal services that want to understand airmail. Uh, you even have, <laughs> The post office investing in rocket technology. There's some crazy pictures um, of rockets in the in the wake of World War II, and so this is Nazi technology that's being brought over. Um, but rockets being tested for mail delivery, and it's kind of obvious, I think, to us why that wasn't a good idea, and why maybe <laughs> the the mail didn't come through uh, entirely intact. But the postal service was an engine of support for the entrepreneurial economy. Uh, and really shaped the development of the country technologically in ways that we've totally elided out of public memory. We don't recall this at all uh, because it's been the project for the last 50 years to view the postal service increasingly as something that belongs to the private sector. And therefore we've seen the growth first of UPS and FedEx as privatized alternatives that are performing what's uh, thought of in kind of legal sectors when you're thinking about competition and monopolies as cream skimming, right? UPS and FedEx started as uh, kind of skimming off the top of postal service, the lucrative corporate communications, mm. um, but have now expanded to do packages and to function as, you know, granted more expensive, uh, but, you know, theoretically more reliable uh, and faster postal services. And now, as you were saying, we see Amazon getting into the business itself and saying that it can distribute its own goods. Um, but the postal service, certainly these companies make no pretenses to treating every citizen the same. And the postal service, you know, until recent proposals over the last couple of months by Trump appointed uh, or indirectly appointed Postmaster General Louis DeJoy, the Postal Service 
delivers mail to every citizen of the United States, to every resident, sorry, of the United States, to every address in this country. And they do so at flat rates. And that's really substantial uh, and is you know, a factor, increasingly a lone factor, an isolated factor in preserving people's ability to live outside of kind of giant urban centers. Uh, and that, that's a level of you know, publicly subsidized and supported uh, equality in daily life that we're not that used to seeing from government anymore, and which you know, no one should have any pretense that Amazon or UPS or FedEx would sustain that. No, it's so interesting. I, I was listening to a podcast about the USPS earlier, and it was saying, you know, um, with the rise of email, people that thought that, oh, USPS is done for. Um, and kind of what you're saying, I mean, USPS ended up being the thing that allowed e-commerce, online shopping mm -hmm. to exist, mm -hmm. right? And so no we question. see, I mean, I love that. Um, I didn't know that about the flights and the trains. That's really interesting that this is another way that government is oh, yeah. helping entrepreneurs, right? Amazon, our dear um, online library, the everything <laughs> store wouldn't exist if it wasn't for, you know, the government funding post. Yeah. Um, it's interesting because what seems to be happening, I mean, there's arguments about what Amazon is doing to USPS, whether it really is undermining it or not. Mm -hmm. um, it seems at least like it is possible, especially when combined with like the politics around the post office mm -hmm. right now that, that we could, that this could be an institution that we lose. Um, and, you know, this goes back to, you know, other things in which like the government, you know, this is neoliberalism writ large, but right, like the government seeds, um, is seeding this type of critical infrastructure. Um, but I think about that a lot with Gmail and, and, and Facebook in terms of like your digital identity, which is like in, in the quote unquote physical non-digital world, you know, you need a state issued ID to prove your identity, mm -hmm. but online, everything's basically connected to your email, which is exactly. an identity that a private corporation um, give, you know, provides to you. And this goes back to, you know, the invention of the passport where, you know, passes for, for um, you know, written permission to be able to travel used to be given to you by a variety of different private corporations, you know, obviously the church, but also your employer. And then slowly states took this power um, in tandem with the formation of the modern state. And now it seems to be seeding it um, again. So I don't know, you know, back to this question of like infrastructure and, and what we gain, you know, what we stand to lose, um, how we should think about the state seeding this type of, this type of power. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think we should feel extremely nervous about it. And if we break down your example, even a little bit, hopefully it looks completely insane that all of our bank accounts, all of our medical records, anything sensitive which exists online is accessible to anyone who has access to your email account, right? That the way you reset a password is by receiving an email. And what that means practically for most of us is that Google via Gmail or Microsoft via Outlook or a handful of other private companies have in theory, complete access and complete control to most sensitive information in your life. And while I think no one, you know, no one thinks that Google sees it in its best interest uh, to start performing like mass scale bank heists. We should be fundamentally concerned about the privacy implications of it as well. Uh, and I mean, I think that's obvious insofar as like, as you were saying earlier in the podcast, 
Gmail is profitable because of ads and because of the data mining that Google performs on your communications. And that's also another fundamental premise of the United States Post Office and now the United States Postal Service is that your communications are private. And you know, with, with some notable exception, the United States Postal Service has been very good at keeping the mail private. Um, notable exceptions, though. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but much, much less. Nothing like speech. Gmail reading your messages or Facebook. Reading. Right, right. The post office is not like trawling every letter you get, you know, data mining it to understand your advertising preferences uh, and also to improve their natural language processing and whatever else. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I was um, going to say, like, okay, it's, so, it's the yeah. identity, like, you know, yes. if. Google decided, I think about this a lot in terms of like Facebook locking people out of their accounts for, for mm -hmm. whatever reason, right? You don't have a right to a Facebook account. Facebook could claim you're a bot right. and throw you off for any reason it wants, right? But if your identity is linked to that, so like if Gmail, you know, you know, if Gmail for some reason decides like you are not the person who owns this email account and throws you out because it can, or it kicks you off the services because it could within its rights, all of a sudden like your access to so many things that are linked to your email are gone. Um, exactly, exactly. And I think your point about identity is really critical. And just to articulate examples of how seriously we take that, that this is really about identity and authority and uh, trustworthiness. I think similarly with Facebook, I think a lot of people of our age, and certainly, you know, people younger than us, think of Facebook primarily as, as a way of retaining a universal online identity. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I, I know I have constant conversations with friends and constant kind of like pathetic and anguished uh, arguments with myself <laughs> over getting rid of Facebook. And the reason I keep it is because it's a place online for me to establish my identity. And there are even apps and online services that require you to give them access to your Facebook account so that they can authenticate you. Yeah, it's um, like an ID. Yeah, yeah. It is an ID. ID. Yeah. It is fundamentally a digital ID. And the reasons why that should be a publicly uh, created, publicly sustained, universally accessible, uh, not-for-profit service are so basic, right? And should be so familiar to anyone who's ever interacted with a portion of the real world government. Um, this is what social security numbers and driver's licenses are for. Uh, and it's absurd to leave them in the hands of, of uh, private corporations, even if they're not up to anything explicitly nefarious. Uh, it's just inappropriate. and. There's no reason not to think, given the history of an institution like the post office, that they couldn't do a good job with it. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. Yeah, the post office should run an email service. I mean, yes, we should nationalize Gmail. And it's a shame <laughs> we don't have our friend Jonathan Yu here to, you know, <laughs> flesh out that argument even further. But we should have a government email service. And I just want to go into another reason why this is important. Um, and this will take us into postal banking. But one thing that every American is familiar with over the last year is, um, you know, pandemic bucks or however you want to refer to them. The government, uh, you know, it's not stimulus. I guess it's it's support Economic and recovery money. Economic impact payment. There it is. <laughs> um, and we've received, most people have received two rounds of that. Um, I know I received two rounds of that. Some people received one round. The details of who got when were And you got a little letter because... from Mr. Trump that said, exactly, you're welcome. Yeah, which of, of course framed and treasured. Yeah, it came how from How was mail. that money? Yeah, how, how was it distributed? Uh, for many people, if you didn't have direct deposit, if you don't already have a private bank account, if you are not financially stable and high income enough to participate in the private banking system, then you received this money via check through the mail, or increasingly, 
via a debit card. And so what's going on there? What's going on there? The government is admitting that it has no way to get money to people in this country in a modern and secure way that doesn't involve the intervention of a private corporation. That's absurd, right? That's absurd. And that's fundamentally linked to the, you know, the inefficiencies and inadequacies and failures of all sorts of social safety net systems that we've seen during the course of the pandemic. The government has just found it incredibly hard to know which of its citizens legitimately need financial help and then to figure out how to get money to them. And we see this, you know, the failures are immense. Like California, which we like to view with, you know, uh, some, but not, not, not uh, universal uh, justification as like a, a, an American example of good government, lost $10 billion in unemployment insurance to fraud. And this is because the government just hasn't invested, hasn't seen a role in fundamentally providing financial options to people who can't participate in the private banking system. And that's, that's regressive policymaking uh, very, very clearly. And it becomes even more regressive when you realize that some very high percentage of low-income uh, census tracts don't have a physical bank location. And that, that makes it incredibly hard for people who don't have an, a bank account, don't have online banking, don't have credit cards, to even you know, participate in the cash economy. Uh, it leaves them dependent yeah. on, on institutions like payday lenders, which are exploitative. Um, and just to go back to this debit card situation, um, what, what's fundamentally happening is the federal government is handing hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billions of dollars, to a private bank consortium saying, you distribute this, you, in the meantime, before they spend it, you know, appreciate the interest and the investment potential of this public money, this taxpayer money. And if these people lose these debit cards or get locked out of them or, you know, whatever, keep it, keep that money. Um, because, because we can't be bothered to set up a system by which people who don't already have bank accounts and credit cards and everything else can participate in the financial system and can fundamentally receive the support they need to live during a pandemic. And what is the alternative, which we've seen actually in this country for three or four decades, and we see around the world, it's postal banking. It's the idea that the government as a public service provides access to very basic banking uh, via the post office, because it's an institution that exists in every zip code around this country, that's already well-practiced at getting in touch with every single American, that's well-practiced at providing daily reliable service that stays open, you know, in all types of weather that exists as a service for people to interface with their government. Um, and we've systematically over the last 50 years constrained the scope of that and constrained it further. And uh, you know, there, there are a small number of advocates for a postal banking system in Congress. Um, I think it's, it's heavily supported by the really incredible postal workers union. And that's another thing we haven't talked about, the yeah, ways the in which union, the postal yeah. service, yeah, provides, you know, sustainable middle-class jobs to a vast and disproportionately minority workforce. Um, the ways in which the Postal Service has provided, um, you know, a progressive ladder of, you know, economic betterment in a country that really doesn't see a government role for that. Um, right, like this, this is an infrastructure that can allow for public participation in all sorts of different realms, whether we're talking about Gmail or whether we're talking about banking and fundamental financial services and creating a non-privatized way to put public money into the hands of people who need public support. Um, the possibilities are limitless if we think about infrastructure as public good. 
mm-hmm. right? And not as a thing that companies invest in and build out to the extent they see it as profitable for themselves. And then we all benefit from the fruits of their labor. If we view it that way, we're never going to improve these systems. And it's not just going to be about electricity in Texas or water supply in Florida or all of that. It's going to be about our ability to get unemployment insurance to people because banking is infrastructure. It's going to be about our ability to communicate without, you know, corporate interference. Uh, Because Gmail at this point, uh, you know, the email system is infrastructure. Um, Infrastructure, you know, literally in its Latin meaning is the thing that sits behind the structure. It's It's the bones and the guts that make our everyday lives work. And just by that kind of fundamental definition, it seems very clear to me that it should be publicly governed, that it should be in the hands of all of us, because it's the stuff that links us together and that makes our lives in society function. Thanks so much again to Josh for coming on this episode and making what I think is a very compelling case for why we should nationalize Gmail. All of the articles, books, or authors that Josh and I mentioned will be available in our show's show notes, so be sure to check them out. You can also sign up for the email newsletter of the Anti-Dystopians to get all these links sent directly to you and be reminded every time we have a new episode. To prevent the world from descending into dystopia, be sure to subscribe to the Anti-Dystopians wherever you get your podcasts.